We're going to be in John chapter 15 today, if you brought your Bibles with you. We're going to be um, kind of, um, actually 16, I apologize, Verses, uh, starting in verse 5. If you were here last week, we spent time looking at uh, just really the spiritual realm, and uh, we talked a lot about like uh, the dark part of that, d- demonic activity, things like that, just as Jesus was talking about how this world is going to hate you, and we kind of looked into why. Why is this world going to hate us as Uh, followers of Jesus. What about Jesus causes anger and hatred and frustration in those that are not uh, followers of Jesus, especially? And so uh, this week, I like how John writes because he follows up with this, like, hey, the world's going to hate you. Things are going to get gnarly. Um, You're not going to be loved. You're not going to be liked. Like, there's a lot of these things going on because of this spiritual world that we live in that we, we don't really see because of this activity of these spirits that do not like God, do not like Jesus, but then he follows it up with going, but there's this helper coming. He follows it right up with the Holy Spirit. So like, because the, the question would, would lead to, well, and how are we supposed to live in this world? How are we supposed to function in this world and in this spiritual space? And uh, he basically says, hey, there's, the Holy Spirit's coming, and he will be a helper. He'll be a comforter. And so with that, I'm going um, I'm to do a little bit of uh, back verses. So one thing that's interesting with John is he is the only one to use the word helper or paracletus as a descriptor of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one in the Gospels. In fact, he uses it uh, about four times. And so he started with John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus, as he's talking about what does it look like for us to function in this spiritual space? So we're physical beings, we live in a physical world, but we're also spiritual beings and we function in a spiritual world. And last week we spent time reminding each other that, that the space in which the most work is done is not seen, the spiritual realm. And so Jesus talking about this coming, verse 14, uh, chapter 14 of John, um, verse 6, it says, Jesus is talking, I will ask of the Father, and he will give you a helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And so John refers, like I said, four times. Now, one thing we want to keep in mind as we've seen throughout Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. He's been third member of the Godhead. He's been there Ever since the beginning, uh, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a person. Every time the Holy Spirit is referred to, he's referred to as he, never it. And we will see that even all the way very back at the beginning, the Holy Spirit was present even in creation. Now, the word helper, like I mentioned, is the word in Greek called parakletos. And that word is interesting because um, it implies being on your side, walking with you, an advocate, almost like this lawyer term, an intercessor. Uh, And we see John referred here as the the, the spirit of truth, right? The originator of truth. So we have helper, intercessor, truth, paracletus. I find that really a cool descriptor because that is the opposite of what Satan's name means. The word Satan is Satan. It actually means adversary. 
means adversary. And we see that in contrast, what we were talking about last week and this week, it goes hand in hand. Adversary, one uh, saint has been called the accuser of the saints. An adversary goes against somebody, challenging them, accusing of failure. I, I think that one of the things that I find so fascinating is being accused of our failure, identity. You're a failure, you're not good. Remember all this garbage you did. We see have these reminders going, that is not God, and that is not the Holy Spirit speaking that. We see that Satan is described as the, a liar and the father of lies. And so we suddenly have this descriptor of the Holy Spirit that's completely opposite of that, helper and intercessor, the spirit of truth. And like I mentioned, the Holy Spirit's always been present since the creation of the world. Like he's, he's eternal, right? But we see in Genesis chapter 1-2, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He played a part in the creation. Now, the interaction between the Holy Spirit and Jesus' disciples, as Jesus is talking about, is changing, right? We see that the Holy Spirit's always been present in the world. In fact, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was with you, right? You know him. He dwells with you, back in chapter 14, verse 16, but he will be in you. So Jesus is giving us a preview of what this interaction with the Holy Spirit is going to look like as Jesus leaves the world, right? He's talking about leaving the world and how the Holy Spirit's going to come into the world. That those that are followers of Jesus, this, this relationship with the Holy Spirit changes. This relationship was this idea of with, like walking with, and we know that we're going to see in the future, again, which is our past, right? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within followers of Jesus. Now, John chapter 14, 26 describes another descriptor of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's the fathers will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And in John 15, 26, he says, but when the helper comes, who I send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. So we see that the function of the Holy Spirit in the life of, the, of a believer and the interaction that we have as he's living within us has a couple of things I think that is important for us to look at. One, tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us all things. Now, this is significant because in a culture like this, uh, like, like Jesus was a part of, where the rabbi was the one that was to teach. The rabbi was one to educate. The rabbi, you, uh, you, you basically had no, like you couldn't just interpret scripture for yourself. You couldn't read the Bible. And, and we see this tradition carried on even in to, to long ago, even with like early Catholic church, where they didn't even have a translation of the Bible for their own. Because the idea was that the priest would be the one that displaces and gives the information. And so that the average person had no way to connect with God, no way to be in relationship with God. And so um, there was this disconnect. But we see that Jesus early on declared that the Holy Spirit would be the one that would allow us to learn and understand. Now, it doesn't diminish the fact that there's teachers, right? Like, it's not like, well, why does Cody have to preaching every week? It's like, I don't know sometimes. But this is what God's called it. This is how God's designed the church. But it doesn't mean that you also can't learn on your own. You can read your Bible, and the Holy Spirit can open and illuminate your eyes to things about God and the things about yourself and challenge you on things that you could do. I don't need to be there with you or any other teacher. That's the beautiful thing about how God designed this world is that he's taking away the hierarchy. He's allowing you personally to 
in the, enter into this spiritual place of like reading this word and praying and interacting with the God of the universe, like the creator of the heavens and earth is inviting you to be in relationship with himself and his Holy Spirit is making that possible for you to know him in a deeper and more profound way. But he also says that he will bring to remembrance everything that I said. This is awesome. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I tell you what, like there's been so many times where I've like read scripture, I've, I've read the Bible, I'm, I'm going through things, and there'll be, I'll be in a conversation with somebody, I'll be talking with somebody, and suddenly something I read pops in, and it's just like words of like, it's just like, man, this is so appropriate at this time. But I think even more beautiful than this is that we are reading John today because the Holy Spirit brought remembrance to John uh, 2,000 years ago. Right? And he wrote Jesus' words down, right? John has more recordings of what Jesus said, especially at the last part of his life, than any other person. And who, how did he just remember that verbatim? No, the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance everything that Jesus said. And we have access to that. And he lastly says he will bear witness and testify about Jesus. One of the, the indicators that shows the Holy Spirit as, is working or it's a, that's the Holy Spirit's communicating something is Jesus is glorified. Jesus is glorified. If we see anybody else getting any, like, glor- if, if glory is taken from Jesus in any way to anything else, whether it be a church or whether it be a person or whether it be anything else, there's a really, really strong possibility the Holy Spirit is not a part of what is going on in that moment. Not saying it can never be, Right? There's moments where I may not bring glory to Jesus, but in the moments where I'm like, hey guys, it's all about me, or it's all about Christ's community, whatever else, you can know like that's not the Holy Spirit's putting those words in my mouth, right? That is because Jesus isn't being glorified. So this sets us up to what we're going to be finishing and looking at today is he's saying Jesus already set the stage to what the helper is going to look like and how he's going to function with believers. And we're going to see that he's going to transition from what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to work in the believer's life, and he's going to transition, like, what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to, look like, to function in the world, right? Because the Holy Spirit's not just working in me, he's working in this world. He's drawing people that don't follow Jesus uh, to himself. He's opening eyes of people that don't know Jesus to see truth. He's uncovering lies. He's doing all of these things. And so that is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. So John chapter 16, verse 5, says this. Jesus is saying, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I will tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, I'm leaving. But he says to him, it is to your advantage that I leave. So he's telling them that he's leaving him. They're sad. He's like, I can tell you're bummed about this. I know you're confused. And he's like, don't worry. It's for the good. It's good that I leave. And I can imagine them going like, wait, what? Like, we have to always kind of go back to their perspective because they were planning on Jesus conquering Rome, establishing a physical throne in Jerusalem and ruling forever right? That was their expectation, right? Jesus hasn't died yet. They're not expecting any of this. And he's like, listen, I'm leaving actually. And they're like, but you're the Messiah. You're not supposed to leave, right? There's a confusion. And then he says, no, but it's actually good that I go away. Now, I think it's interesting because 
from my perspective, it would make more sense that Jesus never went away, right? Wouldn't more people come to believe if the creator of the universe was preaching every, every Sunday in Jerusalem? Wouldn't, like, wouldn't more people, like, come to know Jesus? Like, if he's just like, yeah, I'm just going to set up my church and just rock, like, for thousands of years. Like, that seems like it would be more effective. And I think it's important because so often people go, if I just could see Jesus, like, if he just could speak to me, or, like, if I, if, if I was there, I would believe, right? And Jesus is actually saying, no, it's actually better that I leave, and I think these are the reasons why. He goes, if I go away, the helper can come. Before Jesus came, there's a couple of things we want to look at, why it's advantageous for the world. Before Jesus came to the earth, God's presence primarily dwelt in a temple, or before that, a tabernacle, that God chose to let his ex people experience his presence in this small, tiny little room in the back of a temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. And there was uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and there was these golden cherub, and God's presence chose to dwell between the cherub in this Holy of Holies. And here's the thing, is that people just couldn't waltz in there and like hang out with, with God, right? It was very exclusive. It didn't move, right? Like it was always that spot, and it was dangerous. God being this holy and perfect God, his presence, his, his presence being so holy and perfect that if anybody came in unprepared or without sacrifice or without being things right, they would die. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant long previously was taken captive by the Philistines and when it came back, the people were like, it's cool, and they went out and touched it and it like killed them, right? Like God, apart from Jesus, is, can be dangerous, right? We, he, he is not tame right? And so this was how God chose to interact with humanity. And so one day a year, one human being, the high priest, only after tons of sacrifice, tons of bloodshed of animals, would enter in on the day of atonement to the Holy of Holies and interact with God. One time, once a year. That was how God's presence functioned in the world. And if anybody else tried to get close, they were doomed. So then Jesus comes. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God comes, puts on flesh, and he, he dwells with human beings. He tabernacles, this is actually the word there, with human beings. So now we have God's presence dwelling within Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus referred to himself all the time as like, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, right? What is he saying? I am the physical presence of God in bodily form, dwelling and walking among the earth. And so now we see things change. Now God's presence could be experienced not just by the high priest, but by anyone, the unclean, the unholy, anybody that Jesus came in contact with. In fact, those were primarily the people that Jesus was interacting with, the people on the outcast, the people that would never go to the temple, the people that could never get into the temple. Those were the ones that Jesus was interacting with, the tax collector. We see all going, interacting with these people. The presence of God was going into these spaces. But not only that, we see that it was not just experienced by everybody else, but it was mobile. He, the temple of God was going to people. God was going to people and entering into their spaces. But also, it was safe. The holy presence of God dwelling in bodily form was able to interact with the people that were 
sinners and un, unclean. And in fact, we see Jesus proving such beautiful things when he's healing lepers. One of the things about leprosy is that it was transferred through touch. And in fact, when, um, when you were, if you were a leper, you'd have to run around ever, telling everybody, yelling every time you walked out in public, unclean, unclean, so that you don't touch me. Because the idea was if I touched this leper, the uncleanness would transfer to me and I could then become sick. But we see Jesus showing how it flips as he's out touching lepers and their, his cleanness is transferring to them, right? And so now the presence of God is safe. But Jesus, the God-man, dwells in time and space. He dwells in time and space, which means he's a physical being just like we are. He can't be here and everywhere in the world at the same time. He is limited. And so what was the alternative, that Jesus was going to plant a church and draw everyone from the entire world to accumulate in a specific location to have his, like, mega, super mega, mega church? Like, that's, I mean, you know, like, that's the alternative, Right? Like, it would be like stadiums upon stadiums. Are like, uh, that, that, is not the, uh, that is not advantageous for the world. And so he has a better way. Because he would only be able to care for people in his proximity. The only people in that proximity of, would be able to hear him. Like, but now he has a better way. He said, what if that when the helper comes and he feels human beings, now they are the ones that are able to go? Now we have thousands millions, billions, who knows, right? Going throughout the world. That where the Holy Spirit was with, now he's gonna be in, and now the presence of God is dwelling within human beings, and it really wouldn't be limited within time and space, technically, right? It would, we are all limited, but there's thousands and millions of us going throughout the world, impacting people, letting people experience the presence of God through how we love and how we care and how we show kindness, and how we show mercy. We're interacting with people. They're experiencing something. We're like, why are you caring for somebody? Like, they're your enemy. He's like, no, like, I have the love of Jesus, right? Like, the presence of God is impacting people, and we, too, are mobile, and we, too, are safe. The kingdom of God would spread because where the hot spot of God's presence was in this holy of holies in this temple, now the hot spots are spreading. We're all essentially hot spots of God's presence. And everywhere we go, we're able to let people experience and connect with in some regards and know the love of God and the presence of God. And that is why I would say it's advantageous. John 16 verse 8 says this, as we keep going, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so as he's transitioning the Holy Spirit, how does they function in the world? The first thing he says is he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now the word convict Obviously, I think we know what that means, right? Like you're guilty or whatever else, but it also can be translated convince, right? The idea is that the Holy Spirit's presence in the world is to illuminate and show people things about Jesus and the main things of the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin. He's, Jesus says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What does that mean? One thing to keep in mind is the word sin is an archery term. That's where it gets its origin. Okay? It means to miss. That's simply what it means, right? That we're aiming for a target, 
and we're trying to hit the target, and we miss, right? It's to miss the mark. And here's what's crazy is it, it gets real, like, you start realizing, like, how gnarly it can be. Like, I could be aiming to hit the target. Like, there's, there's stuff where we, it's omission, right? I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And then there's also not, like, not doing what I'm supposed to do and doing what I'm not supposed to do. Yeah, I get those right. Right? So we have things that we're supposed to do and we don't do it, and there's things that we should be doing we don't do, right? So, like, it, it's hard to hit that mark. It's an archery term. Now, what's also interesting about that is we see that the Holy Spirit's working in a way to show people that um, there's a target. You see, I think most people don't realize that they're in an archery match, and I don't think they realize that they're aiming for a target. I don't think they understand that they're missing the target. Like, I don't believe they even know what the target is. And so the Holy Spirit shows people there's a target, that they're missing it, and that the cost is death and separation from God. Now, what's interesting about this also is that you might be saying, well, I miss the mark all the time, man. You and me both, okay? Um, one thing about missing the, the target, it's, it's something that we have to keep always as followers of Jesus understanding is this. Jesus hit the bullseye every single time, okay? Jesus was a master marksman. He hit the bullseye every single time time. And the reason why that's important for us to understand is that the Bible tells us that when we trust Jesus, when we put our faith in him and we accept what he's done for us, we get credit for Jesus' perfect markmanship. That we get credit for hitting the bullseye. Like when God sees us, he sees Jesus' perfect track record of just nailing it, and he attributes that to us when we trust in him. It changes our relationship with God. And so when God sees us, we, we're, because of Christ, we're able to be fully acceptable and approved by God. Now, the reason why that's significant is that allows us, it frees us to respond in a way of wanting to love others and wanting to, to try and keep aiming because there's no fear of judgment. There's no fear that I'm going to be rejected if I don't perform just right. It frees me to go, man, thank you, Jesus, for everything that you've done, and now I can respond by worship. I can respond by doing these good things because even if I feel like I'm forgiven, I can trust Jesus, it's not like I want to go out and do bad things. It's like it changes my desires from the inside out. We get credit for that. What's also fascinating about this passage is Jesus goes, he's here to con convince or convict the world of sin because I go to my father. Oh, no, because they do not believe in me. What does belief have to do with any of this? And I think it's a lot of what I'm saying. The core of every sin is unbelief, right? It's not believing something about God. It's not believing about something about ourselves. It's not, it's, it comes from not believing something true. We might believe this thing provides, that we're pursuing this gross thing might provide satisfaction. We might believe this thing will actually satisfy. We believe this sin will actually bring fulfillment or whatever else. And so we're believing a lie. So at the core of every thing that we do that's in rebellion or missing the mark is unbelief, right? And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to my Father, and they don't believe in me. Like, so the Holy Spirit can convince the world of sin because um, they do not believe in me. He's convincing people of sin so they might believe and trust in Jesus. And for those that are followers of Jesus, we too come back into that space of going in moments of unbelief, in moments of doubt, moments of not trusting Jesus, we too can come back in that space and go, Thank you, Jesus, that you've done everything necessary. Thank you that you're the one that makes me right with the Father. 
Thank you that I don't have to earn your affection or earn your favor, that Jesus, you fulfilled everything necessary for me through your life, death, and resurrection. But then the Holy Spirit moves on as well. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Righteousness. Righteousness basically means right action, right living, living right, right? And God is the one that determines what right living is, right? And so this righteousness that he's speaking of is right living before God. So his return to the Father showed a couple of things. One, it showed that Jesus completed his mission. He's done. Like, he has done, he has fulfilled everything the Father is required. It says not only that he went and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, like, he's done, like, he's resting. He has fulfilled everything that God required. Jesus imaged God perfectly, demonstrating how God intended humans to live. That's important because as followers of Jesus, we see all the way back in Genesis that we were created in the image of God. That was our primary function as human beings, and human beings failed miserably for centuries upon centuries, and in many ways we still are, but Jesus didn't. Jesus lived that life that we cannot live, imaging God and showing the world and us how it looks to be a follower of God. So the Holy Spirit's job is showing that there's a better way, there's a better way to live, there's a better life and everything else. Jesus is the righteous one. Like I said, he hits the bullseye every time. And he's a giver of righteousness to those that trust him. And so as he's convincing the world uh, of all of these things, we are getting credit and essentially for his righteousness. And I think another thing to comment on is that the Holy Spirit convinces people that the life that God intended can only be found in the life of Jesus. That's part of that right living. Like, I think so often as people are going like, I need to live right, and if I do these things, then, then this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. And when it doesn't, they kind of go like, what, what's the point of all this? And the point isn't right living. The point is Jesus, right? Like, that's why Jesus came and he did everything necessary so that when we trust him, we get credit for that. The goal isn't just to sin less. The goal is Jesus. Sinning less is a byproduct of following Christ, right? And so his point in all of this is saying, look to Christ. Look to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that you long for and everything that you're, you're doing. And the last thing, he convinces the world of judgment. He says, because of this ruler of this world is judge. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about how the ruler of this world is Satan, and there he is being judged Jesus is, uh, really took all this power and everything away, and so we're not held under captive by the kingdom of this world. And the Holy Spirit's trying to work, convince people that the kingdom that they're living in is under judgment. Like, that's the hard thing, is we look out, and people don't realize that who they're believing and who they're trusting and who they're following is like evil. Like, the world looks good, they feel like they're doing good, but they have no idea that God is coming and will judge this world one day. And the Holy Spirit's work is to reveal that, that the kingdom of God is available and he's inviting anybody that wants to be a part of it into it. Let me close out with this, these last few verses, 12, verse 12 of chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears of me, he'll speak, and he will um, declare to you the things that are now to come, that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all the Father that uh, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
So Jesus is kind of closing up this statement. After this week, he starts getting into um, his prayer for um, the church and everything else as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually takes, gets arrested. But he closes out a few things. One, he says that the Holy Spirit will continue speaking Jesus' words to the people. He says, I, there's a bunch of things I still have to say that I cannot say. And I think that's so cool because I think that the rest of the New Testament is a result of all these things that Jesus wanted to communicate that he didn't have time to say. And the Holy Spirit filled in a lot of those gaps by giving us uh, the rest of the New Testament through the people that were following him. He will guide you in all truth. He will speak what he hears from Jesus. And, so we, and we see that all that the Father has is also be given. We see really that the Father, Son, and Spirit are working in tandem to bring us closer to Christ. Right? We have this very Trinitarian interaction with human beings and how our relationship is with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But then he gets into this last part where I think that um, as he's kind of closing out, the question I had was, well, how, how can we more, how do we experience the Holy Spirit more? Like, I think the, as I was reading this, I'm like, man, God, like, that's so awesome. I keep forgetting there was a guy that wrote a book many, a few years back called Forgotten God, and it was a whole book about the Holy Spirit. The guy's name is Francis Chan. It's actually pretty good. But it's funny because so often I forget how much I need the Holy Spirit and how much he plays a part in everyday life. And so I was thinking, so how do we experience more of the Holy Spirit? One, we see, I would say, the Scripture, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit, through the inspiration, authored this. And so we can interact with God through his word. But I think another one is prayer. I talked a little bit about this last week, that when we pray, we are entering into a spiritual realm. Like, we are entering into a space where God dwells, right? Like, it is a big deal. And one of the things I love about the Holy Spirit is Romans chapter 8, verse 26. This thing fascinates me. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray or how we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When we pray, don't worry if you're doing it right. Don't worry if you're saying all the right words. Don't worry if, if, if you're articulating just right, you say it in the right, like old English or not. Like, it doesn't matter. Because the beautiful part about this relation that God has is when we enter into this space where, we want to, where we're wanting to beseech God, we're wanting to go to him and, and adore him and pray to him, God sees that. The Holy Spirit interprets everything we're asking according to the will of God. Like, that frees us where we don't have to, like, I remember there'd be times like, should I even pray for this? I feel like I'm being selfish. Like, should I even pray for these things? Like, man, I feel like I'm praying the same thing over and over again. Listen, the Holy Spirit is searching your heart, searching your desires, and he's interpreting and interceding for you before God Almighty so that you, that according to his will. And so there's a lot of times where I'm like, Lord, I'm lifting this up to you. I don't even know if this is good, man. Like, I don't even know. But I trust that the Holy Spirit will interpret and, and that your will will be done. I don't have to worry about these things. And so prayer is a way for us to experience and know and interact with the Holy Spirit. Another one is conviction. 
What I mean conviction is, I mean, when you do that thing or you don't do that thing and you're like, mm, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I should have done this thing instead. So often, I've mentioned this before, so often I, I, I grew up like dreading that feeling. Dreading it. Like, man, I don't want to ever feel that. And what's so crazy is I always took that conviction as God's disappointment in me. I took that conviction as, as though God was like, you did it again. Man, you suck at this, right? Like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you said that. That's how I took it. I am not saying that's how God is, but that's how I took it. And so I always looked at conviction as this thing that was like so shameful and like I didn't want it. And what was so eye-opening to me was I was reading in Ephesians chapter 1, 13, and it's talking about the interaction with the Holy Spirit. I'll actually just read it to you real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, and I've shared this before, but I think it's worth saying again. It says, in him, talking about the Holy Spirit, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, oh, Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee there means dowry, or it means it can mean engagement ring, it's a down payment, right? And, I, and I've shared this before, but the idea of, of just an engagement ring or a doubt, like it's a promise of love. It's a promise of commitment. It's a promise that I want to be with you, that I want to spend my life with you, right? When I proposed to my wife, like that was what she was doing on the boat ride back from Victoria, Canada. Like this, the, the diamond, whatever else. He loves me. He wants me. He wants to be with me. He wants to spend his life with me. He loves me. And, and the Holy Spirit, like, I experience the Holy Spirit more in conviction than I do any other time because I'm always screwing up and doing stupid things. And when I do, the reminder of his, of his conviction isn't that you'd screwed up again and you're not doing well. I can't believe you did that. It's saying, I love you. Come back to me. I'm, I'm committed to you. I want you to be with me forever. I love you. Come back. Turn to me. Stop running to that thing. Stop going that direction. I love you. It's a reminder of God's commitment to you. It's a reminder of God's love for you. And so when we are convicted, we go, thank you that you love me so much that you won't let me keep running in this direction. Thank you that you love me so much that you want to remind me of your love and remind me of your goodness, that you remind me that I'm believing a lie. I'm believing a lie and I'm running towards things that will destroy me. Thank you that you love me. And we can turn. And that turning to God is by definition repentance. It's moving towards God. The last one or two that's real quick. I think another way we experience the presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit is in our suffering and in our weakness. And I know that nobody likes that. But the times I've been the weakest and the times that I've suffered the most, God's presence has been so near. And even Paul in 2 Corinthians, when he was talking about this thorn in his flesh, right? He had some sort of physical ailment that would not go away. In fact, Paul goes, I've asked three times from God to take this thing away from me. I've begged him to take this thing away from me. And he, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, well, now I boast in my weakness because I know that when I am weak, then I am strong. Why did he say that? Because God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My strength, 
God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so although I wish none of you to experience suffering and none of us to experience times of deep weakness, let me assure you that in those times of pain and in those times of suffering, God's presence is very, very near and his strength is made perfect in your weakness. And you can rejoice in those times as you see. And I think many of us have experienced that. We're like, man, I remember there was a time where I'm like, Lord, your presence is so real when I'm suffering. I would be afraid to ask of this, but I almost prefer that time of suffering than I do these times of good because you're so near and you're so real. And then I got a hold of myself. I'm like, what are you doing? It's a terrible idea to pray that. But his, he, he was so tangible. And then lastly, community. We experience the presence of the Holy Spirit through one another, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, right? Those are all relational concepts. Those are all things we interact with one another, right? I experience kindness and love and gentleness and mercy and all of these things, joy. I'm experiencing that from other followers of Jesus. That is a fruit of the Spirit. So it's good for us to be in relationship with one another so that we can know God more through one another. So with that, the worship team can come up. We're going to close out our time. And I just want to remind you, like, we have communion available. You can come and take it whenever you'd like.